Hi everyone, this is Tracy Fenton, founder of World Blue, and welcome to the Freedom at Work podcast. I'm here to teach you how to think with a freedom-centered mindset, thrive as a freedom-centered leader, and finally, how to build a freedom-centered culture for your team or workplace. This podcast is about answering one key question. How can you, as a leader, use freedom rather than fear to unleash the full potential of individuals, teams, and organizations in order to achieve breakthrough results and change the world for the better? If you want to explore the answers, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. It's great to be with you today. I love talking with authors and thought leaders who are thinking along with us here at World Blue in this space of how to advance freedom and democracy in the workplace and in our world, which is why my guest today is Chuck Blakeman, founder and chief transformation officer at the Crankset Group in Denver, Colorado. Chuck is the author of several top-rated business books, all of which I have. One is called Making Money is Killing Your Business and Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea. Very provocative title there. He wrote a blog for a weekly Inc. magazine column entitled The Emerging Work World, which you can still check out on Inc. today. Chuck is an incredibly accomplished entrepreneur. He started and built 12 businesses in eight industries on four continents and now uses his experience to advise other top leaders around the world. His company, Craigset Group, provides outcome-based mentoring and peer advisory services for business leaders worldwide. Now, Chuck's newest book, which is what we're going to be talking about today, is entitled Rehumanizing the Workplace by Giving Everybody Their Brain Back, which is coming out this fall. And I have the privilege of seeing an advanced copy of this book. So today we'll be talking about his latest book on rehumanizing the workplace, which also features Nearsoft, a World Blue certified freedom-centered organization and one of the members of World Blue. So Chuck, it's such a privilege and honor to have you with us today. Thanks so much for joining me. It's a joy to be with you. I have to laugh at the introductions. They always sound like obituaries to me, you know, all the things this guy used to do, but uh, I appreciate you having us on. I'm looking forward to this. Oh, well, you have achieved a lot. And there's a lot more head to come. So (laughs) I understand. I understand. Well, it's really exciting, this whole idea of rehumanizing the workplace. And I just want to kick off by asking, what's the problem that you see, Chuck, that inspired you to write this book? What's the problem? It's a great question. The fundamental problem, I think, in business is that we are stuck in the industrial age. Most companies think that we left the industrial age in the 1970s when we shipped all the smokestacks to China and and ended up with digital clean rooms. But if you look at the front office, the front office looks exactly like it did in 1903 with guys in ties making decisions for everybody else through a top-down pyramid scheme that wasn't a good idea when it was in the factories. And we continue to drag all of that stuff forward into today's world where I would say the tech world is more like a factory than most factories were in 1910. The result is people are dehumanized. The number one thing we're trying to solve here is this question. What makes me human and an adult, those two things together. What makes me human is, you know, awareness and creativity and those kinds of things. What makes me an adult? What's the number one thing? Well, the fancy term for that, Tracy, is agency of responsibility. Well, the non-fancy term for that is I get to make decisions. 
Yes, I can eat exactly. the ice cream anytime I freaking want to. That is the one thing that separates us from children. What's the one thing you're not allowed to do at work? Make decisions, Make decisions. or even ask why. You ask, you know, ask important questions. You're treated like, as soon as you cross the threshold of work, you're treated like a four-year-old. In many cases, not intentionally. It's just the way the system is set up. You have a manager and, and they have a director and those people are in charge of decision-making and you're in charge of being a human, carrying those things out. So that's the fundamental problem. We have dehumanized work to the point where only about 32% of people are engaged, which means close to 70% of the people are phoning it in every day. They're just, just going through the motions to get a paycheck. If you had a machine that was working at 30%, would you do something about it? But we just say, well, that's the way it is. You know, what are you going to do? 60 plus percent of people have their resumes on the street at any given time pre-COVID, pre-COVID. Yes. And 86% respond to the survey question, have you found your ideal job? No. 14% of people are doing something they love doing. This is fundamentally broken and it's dehumanizing and that's what we need to solve because when we do that, the data shows you make more money faster, higher productivity, higher retention. It's all there because you rehumanized your workplace. I love that because we do need to bring the humanity back into our workplace. And the subtitle of your book is so fun. We rehumanize workplace, here's the subtitle, by giving everybody their brain back. So tell us more about that. What does it mean to have your brain back? Is it just about being able to make decisions together, which in and of itself is huge? Is there more to it than that? Tell us, tell us. There really isn't. We have uh, 12 tools and practices that help you get there, but there really is nothing more to it. If I'm going to be an adult at work, I should be making decisions. Yes. If your listeners get nothing else out of this, distributed decision-making is the key. How do we distribute the decision-making in a rational, logical, organized way that actually is better for the company with this simple principle? The more input I have in a decision, the more ownership I will have in carrying it out. Input equals ownership. Or another fancy way of saying it, people commit to what they create. And if you think about how the management structure is put together, people don't get to have input. They don't create anything. They get processes and products and machines and, and people foisted on them every day. The, the guy walks out from his ivory-covered office and says, here's your new marriage. Here's your new eight-hour-a-day marriage and walks back in and foists another person. You don't get input. So it is that simple and that hard. It's, it's simple but not easy. So let's go into more of this distributed decision-making because this is so duh for some people and so (laughs) mind-blowing for others, right? You and I have talked in other conversations. You know, one of the 10 principles of organizational democracy that we teach is decentralization of power. And one of those ways to decentralize power is having this more distributed decision-making process. And so I know you talk in the book about a two-step decision-making process. Tell us more about that, if you would. It's the key to to making decisions in any company, even if you don't believe in this stuff. You should be doing two-step decision-making, which most companies are not. If input equals ownership, therefore, is that decisions should be made locally whenever possible. Who has to carry out this decision? They should make it. 
not by themselves, not in a vacuum. We live in community at work. And so lots of people, whoever's impacted by this decision, whoever has to carry it out, they work on this together. That's what you teach it, you know, in your entire approach to life at work. Yeah. The whole democratic ideas, we're all going to be impacted by this. We should all have some input in it. So the principle is that decisions need to be made locally. And two-step decision-making is really, again, a very simple thing that can take you months to figure out. We had one $300 million corporation we taught this to. They took three and a half months on one of the 12 principles. And sometimes most people take two weeks on distributed decision-making. Took them three and a half months on this one principle we call two-step decision-making. Here's the two steps. The first principle in this two-step decision-making is decisions are made where they are carried out. So you ask this question, who will carry this out? pretty brain dead. So who's going to have to carry this out? They should be principal in making the decision. Those three or four or five or 12 people get together. And the first question they ask is who else will be affected by our decision? They may never have to carry it out. We're going to buy the software and use it ourselves. Nobody else will have to, but who else is affected? Well, accounting, IT, the sales force, whoever, you know, there's lots of people who are affected by decisions. We live in community at work that strings that thing across the uh, company and, and causes you to get involved in starting a, a Slack channel or something else to do that. But it's a really simple process and it can happen in one day. It can take a month. It depends on how serious the, the question is, how many people will be affected and impacted. So just two questions. Who's going to carry out this decision? They should make it. Who will be affected? They should be involved. And you give everybody that opportunity to do that. And when you do those two things, it solves one of the top three issues in all corporations. Anytime you do a survey, what are your top 10 things? One of the top three is always communications. I don't know what's going on. Absolutely. And people don't feel that sense of ownership and they feel that something's been done to them yeah. when they don't have a say in that decision. And that's where you see the disengagement. That's where you see the dragging of the feet and the corporate sabotage and in overt and covert sure. ways. I don't own it. It's yeah. They didn't ask me. Okay. So you know what the first objection that people have is, is, oh my gosh, how much time does this take? Oh, yeah. Right? Speak to oh, that yeah. if you would. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is going to take weeks and months and this is going to slow everything down. Have you heard of supervisors, managers, directors, VPs on back down through the process? The average decision at work at a minimum gets 10 touches and more often 38 touches because team A wants to talk to team L. What do they do? They go to their supervisor. The supervisor goes to the manager, puts it in their inbox. The inbox of the manager goes to the director, director VP, back down to the director, the manager, the supervisor. And then it goes to the other team's supervisor. Who the man. And by the time it gets to the other team, it doesn't look anything like they wanted it to, or the politics are involved. It never even gets to them. Decision-making in corporate America is one of the slowest, hardest things you can do. In two-step decision-making, you can have it as simple as two touches. Team A talks to Team L. Elon Musk put out a, uh, an email a couple years ago that said, anybody who stands in the way of two people making a decision, including a manager, will be finding a job in another place. When two people need to talk, they talk until something good happens. You can do that in 20 minutes. Now, you don't want to stop there because that's chaos and anarchy. So that's where you have to get people who are affected involved, but you give timelines. We need to have this decision done in two hours or three weeks or whatever it is. And the people who are affected might say, no, we want that to happen faster or slower. But I guarantee you with two-step decision-making, it's much faster, much simpler, and more people are involved in the decision when you're done. 
Now, when they do that, Chuck, and are having those conversations, is that final decision made? In other words, do you advocate for a certain way of the final decision being made? For example, a vote or consensus or consent? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, because I know how you guys, you promote the idea that everybody should be on board before you get done with the decision. We, we do the very same thing. We just start there. Before any decision is made, we say, here's the process. Anybody who's affected and anybody who is going to carry it out has to be involved in that decision. Do we all agree that this process of two-step decision-making is how we will make decisions going forward? And there is that consensus then. We have to have everybody on board with that. And if they're not, we need to get them on board. And frankly, if they can't get on board, they will probably go somewhere else. That's rare. But it is a 100% kind of thing. We all agree we will make decisions this way. When that's done, now you get to the point where there might be 200 people in a company and this decision is going to be carried out by four of them and it's going to impact 23 of them. Well, those 27 people should talk and figure it out. You know, it doesn't have to be the whole company. It's just a waste of time for everybody else. The best way to do this kind of stuff is, again, throw it out on a Slack channel and involve whoever you think should be involved in and say, hey, I need, we need your input or we need you to get back to us that you want to be involved in this decision in the next 24 hours. If you don't respond, we'll assume you're out. You're fine with whatever we come up with. So that's consensus. And then 27 people are sent that and seven of them decide to respond. All right, now you got a team of seven and you work it out. And the first thing you do when you get into the room is say, we have to agree together on what grounds we will say this decision is done. Does it have to be all seven of us that agree? Or is this the kind of decision we can go with four out of seven? Or So we make that decision and we agree together in consensus, this is how we would make this decision. And then when do we have to be done? What's our timeline? Do we have four hours? Do we have three days? So you make those two decisions on what grounds will we make it and how fast will it be made? You do that, the first two steps in working this out. Well, I think that's very important. You touch on several things there that are very important. You know, we teach at World Blue. Of course, when we talk about organizational democracy, the first thing people think when they hear the word democracy is vote, voting. Yeah. And they vote in North Korea. You know, they uh -huh. voted under Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Does that mean they have democracy? No. Voting doesn't equal democracy. Voting, consensus, and consent are ways of making decisions, you know, if you're actually building organizational democracy, there's, as we teach, there's a lot more involved with that. But I like what you're saying that there needs to be some agreed upon factors here before you even go into the decision-making process. You know, who should be involved? How do we want to make that decision? So yeah. on and so forth. And that's something, you know, we teach at World Blue is you can use different decision-making methods to make that final decision. But guess what? It's really great when you can reach consensus. And sometimes I find that word scares people and they think, oh, you're going to end up with some you know, watered down decision. And that's just not what happens. I mean, when you have a good, rigorous conversation, informed conversation that's respectful, people can get to a place of agreement. And if there's something someone really strongly disagrees with, like you said, they may leave or they may be raising some really good points. Right that need to be discussed that helps strengthen everyone. And then, yes, sometimes that process can take a little bit longer, but when it comes time to execute, you can really run, right? Because people have that shared sense of ownership. They've been participating. They understand why the decision is what it is and they're ready to get behind it. Yeah. Is that what you found in, yeah, in execution? It, yeah. For us, it's a matter of priorities, Tracy. If we're going to buy a copier, 
we really don't need 200 people involved in that. Right, right. Um, who's gonna, who makes copies? The three people who make copies. Okay, go research what you think you need and then talk to anybody affected. The people who get copies, IT, the people who are going to pay for the copies. You know, do they want three-hole punch, stapled, mutilated? What do they want? So you get all the inputs you need to buy a copier from the six or eight or 10 or 20 people who will get copies and the three of you make a decision in conjunction with the strategic leadership who say, yep, that makes sense to us. Thanks. Go ahead. But if you're making a much bigger decision, then it should be everybody. So for us, one of the big decisions is how are we going to make decisions? We have to have consensus on that. And we did this with a company with about 120 people where they all agreed, but one person that we're going to make decisions going forward. Managers are no longer going to tell people what to do. Managers are going to become leaders who ask questions and give guidance, but teams, people who, you know, we're going to use this two-step decision-making process. Everybody agreed, but that one person, he volunteered to quit. I'm standing in the way. I recognize that this is good. I also recognize I can't stop telling people what to do. I'm, you know, I've been telling people what to do for 47 years and he couldn't. I was sat in one of his meetings and it wasn't a meeting. It was a hearing with the Pope. So, <laughs> so, you know, he volunteered to quit. They didn't wow. have to fire anybody. He, he's the one person who quit and all the re- other managers figured out what the, you know, the advantages of being leaders instead. And, and so that's a consensus they have to have. And there's a number of things like consensus on your values, your vision, your mission, what it means to be a business. And there's just so many things that everybody has to be on board with. And then once you get on board with those things, then you can parse out the smaller stuff to those people who need it to buy a copier. I think that is so effective and so powerful the way you're approaching this and very democratic. You know, you talk in the book about these 12 practices, this being one of them, the two-step decision-making process, the, the 12 practices of the participation age. You said at the start of the podcast, we're not in the industrial age anymore. So are we in the participation age? What does that mean to yeah, you? I stole that term. I try not to come up with stuff that's my own. I, I truly, when I started talking and ranting about this stuff 10 years ago, I looked around and tried to find a term. And, and really in 2006, I, our, one of our companies was a marketing company. We uh, ended up at uh, Sun Microsystems out in uh, California. They gave us their marketing partner of the year award, which is very nice. There's like seven of us and they, you know, these giant agencies. But we were there in their favorite partner of the year. And at this little summit that we went to, there was somebody from Wired Magazine who mentioned this thing called the participation age. Mm-hmm. And I asked him afterwards what it was about. And in 2008, there were actually presidential candidates using that term. We are now in the participation age. Mm. The participation age is simply two things, participation and sharing. People want to participate in building a great company, not for you, but with you. And they want to participate. They want to share in the rewards. So they want to participate in building it and they want to share in the rewards. Let's make everybody a capitalist. That's the, the summary of that. Well, one of the other practices, I want to go into several of them here that you talk about that I feel like this is a good segue into in the participation age is that leaders are not managers, but then you'll say everyone is a leader. So tell us about that. Yeah. So we start with the idea that that everyone's a leader and everyone's a follower, but everyone's Mm -hmm. a leader. So Mm -hmm. leader, leader is the principle. That's the tool, leader, leader. What does that mean? Well, if you look at our definition of leadership, it comes clear. Our definition of leadership is this. Any act that improves the life, situation, or performance of another individual. Any act improves the life, situation, or performance of an individual. By that definition, anybody 
can lead. Anybody can do something to improve the life situation or performance of somebody else, helping a, an old woman across the street or an old guy across the street or training somebody or cleaning out the microwave and setting an example. You're improving the life situation or performance of other people. So anybody can lead. The problem with the way we've treated leadership, two things. Number one, we've exalted one of the four major types of leadership, and it is the rarest. It's the guy in the white horse out front, you know, the George Patton, the, the Mahatma Gandhi, the Ronald Reagan, whoever you want to think of. Margaret Thatcher is one of my favorites. You know, these are inspirational giant leaders, and they're so rare. The other mm. three forms of leadership are much more common, and we all share them. Can you be something? That's a form of leadership, to be something. Just your character. You walk into the room and people are more honest because you're honest. Doing something, skill-based performance. This guy's better at what we do and he raises my, every time he makes a, a chair, I try and make a chair like his. A third one is the inspirational. And then the fourth one is the relational. Can you be a friend? Can you be a mentor? Can you mediate? Those are the four kinds of leadership and all four of them, everybody has little bits and pieces, all four of them. We have great exercises to uncover those for each other on a team. How do you lead me? How do I lead you? And people end up in, you know, you need a Kleenex box when you do this because I had no idea that I led you in that way. It's so honoring. So that's the first thing is we have to understand that we're all leaders in that way. And then we understand the definition of management. And that's the second problem here. So the first one is that we exalt the one form of leadership. The second one is we conflate leadership with management. For the last 125 to 150 years, management consulting firms have done a horrible job or maybe a fantastic job of conflating the two of these things. John Cotter at uh, Harvard Business, uh, he's no longer there. He just left. But I'm not the only guy who says management and leadership have nothing in common. Nothing. One is about people. The other is about stuff. Here's a traditional management definition. The use of power and authority to command and control for the benefit of the management. Ouch. <laughs> Does anybody want that? Who wants to be, you know, you talk about dehumanizing, there it is, the use of power and authority to command and control for the benefit of the management. That's why I call the traditional factory system hierarchy a pyramid scheme, because yes. pyramid schemes are built for the people at the top to, to get advantage from the people at the bottom. And that's exactly what we have at work. So we have conflated those two things, and we've got to get away from management and teach everybody how to lead. So the mantra becomes this, manage stuff lead people. I am not stuff. If I put a book on a desk and come back an hour later, it's still there. Books are stupid and lazy. Computers are stupid and lazy. Processes are stupid and lazy. Machines, trucks, all the stuff we have, unless we manage it, it's going to be a problem. But if you lead me, if you give me vision and training and guidance and mentoring and, and help me find good teammates and resource me. Man, I can take off. I don't need your management. The great picture for us, I love pictures that help us with this. What does a participation age company look like? It looks like a soccer team or mm. any other team like that where there's going to be like hockey where everybody shares the puck or the ball almost universally all the time. On a soccer team, who's in charge? The answer is whoever's got the ball. Yep. And if nobody has the ball, who's in charge? The answer is whoever gets to the ball first. <laughs> in a traditional company, if you see that the copier is on its last legs, you're making a copy, you say, boy, this stupid thing is on its last legs. I wonder when the manager is going to figure that out. It's his copier. Imagine if you did that on a soccer field. Hey, uh, coach, can you see this? Can you believe that? There's a ball 20 yards in front of me. That's not my quadrant. Where's the halfback? 
mean, you get pulled off that team so fast. That's a great example of leader, leader. You may not know what to do with the ball, then get it to somebody who does. Find out who is in charge of the copier and make sure that they understand the copiers on the last legs. One phrase that will get you fired at our company is, that's not my job. Yep. That'll get you fired so fast. Everything's your job. The success of the company, we are mission-centered and the success of the mission is my job. And I'll do everything I can within my power, even when I don't know what I'm doing. If I see a ball loose in the field, I'm running to get that ball and I'll get it to whoever can do something with it if I can. That's leader versus manager. I asked this question when I was writing my book and I was astonished with the answer. Do managers make people more productive? Not leaders, managers. A team of eight people with a manager over them. Do they make them more productive? Because that's the assumption, isn't it? That's why managers exist. Somehow, there's eight people producing something. There's one person producing nothing. But the implication is if they're there, the eight people will produce enough more to pay for the manager and some more profit on top of it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be worth it. I found one study that even addressed obliquely that question. Every time you Google that, you'll come up with 27 million hits on why management doesn't work. The one study that attempted to answer the question, do managers make people more productive, was Google's oxygen study. Back in 2002 or three, they decided that they would get rid of all managers. That lasted about three months, and they brought them all back and said, we made a mistake. The reason it didn't work is because they created a vacuum. You don't take something away. You give something that would work better. So if there's something that can replace management, you put that in place first, and then everybody, including the managers, said, yeah, this works better. Let's just do that. Google didn't do that. So then they had to justify their mistakes. So they did a study, and they did it again two years ago, and they came up with eight things that are now 10 things that everybody at Google needs and everybody at every workplace needs, and they're all really good things, and everybody needs those eight or 10 things. And then they did a therefore that has no, makes no sense. Therefore, managers are important. Here's eight or 10 things people need. By the way, one of the eight or 10 things was don't micromanage me. But here's what people need. And they made the gigantic leap. It's a form versus function discussion. Here's the function. Here's eight things that need to get done. We assume there's only one form that can deliver those eight things. What if, what if the seven people on this team could deliver those eight things to themselves better than a manager? And there's tons of studies on companies without, and you've got them through World Blue, democratized workplaces where there aren't managers. The most productive companies, they're at the top of their games, the top of their industries. Huge data on managers actually making people less productive. Well, that makes me want to ask you more about self-management. What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I think that term is unhelpful. I used it for years and years and years, and I dropped it about four years ago because you know, when people think they know what something is, you're in trouble. When I say self-management, more often than not, if they don't know what I'm talking about, they hear chaos and anarchy. Mm-hmm. And now you have to work your way back through all that. But that's why in my new book, I don't think I use that term once, even though the entire book is about self-management. We have found the term distributed decision-making to be much more helpful. It speaks to the practice. It's not a term that everybody understands, so they have to learn it. So they're going into it with eyes wide open. Hey, what does that mean? Rather than, oh, you're one of those people. And it just is, it's much more constructive. So I'm a huge fan of distributed decision-making teams and therefore self-managed teams. I think self-management 
again, brings up the idea that, that there's 300 people at work and they all just kind of work alone in their own little thing because they're all self-managed. That's not how work works. Work works with teams of people living in community and my team manages themselves. We have those eight things that a manager used to do. We distributed those among ourselves and we meet them much better. Because that's the other problem with managers is they can't possibly do all those eight things. Nobody's not superhuman. So a huge fan of management being given over to those who used to be managed. I love your point of the image that does get conjured up with self-management of everyone just sort of working on their own. And that's something that I've taken issue with is even just words like autonomy and self-management. No, we talk at World Blue, one of the 10 principles of organizational democracy is the balance of the individual and the collective. And the reality is people, they want to be in community. I mean, work is one of the biggest communities that people are a part of, a place where they can have a real sense of belonging when done in a healthy way. So I think it's important that we understand, right, people aren't just on their own working in bubbles. And that's what you hear as we talk with our World Blue members, you know, during this pandemic time, people are struggling because they miss being with their colleagues who they love and enjoy and get meaning from. Everyone's sort of isolated in their homes having to work. And so we can't leave out that community piece. It's, it's vital and it's just the reality is we're not in our own little bubbles. We are working well, I, together. I, I, <laughs> I, think, I think you were an early adapter on this stuff uh, years and years ago because from my research and my experience and what we've done with our own company, with other companies, I believe community at work could be the next big discussion we're going to have for you know, many years to come. How do we develop community? How do we bring that back into work? It is that important. It, all the metrics basically say when you're nice to people and you treat them like adults, you make more money. And when you put them in community, you make even a lot more. This is not about how do I make the machine go faster? How do I make a better assembly line? How do I do that transactional stuff? Relationships trump transactional and they make transactional better. But that's a hard message to get across in the 20th century. Coming into the 21st century, we've got data now that demonstrate that we're working in the right direction. There's three modes of work at work, dependent or codependent, which is what the management employee uh, system is. The, the classic definition of a codependent is doing for others what they could or should do for themselves. It's exactly what management is. Management is nothing more, nothing less than pure, unadulterated codependence. And if we saw it that mm-hmm. way, we'd stop doing it. That's one way of working is codependence. On the opposite is independence. Hey, you know, every man for himself. I'm on the, I'm on the sales force. Don't tell me what to do. And you know, I work for myself. And Well, that's not helpful either. The balanced way that you talk about uh, in your 10 practices is what I call interdependence. I yes. could function without you, but why in the world would I? We're so much better together. I need you. You need me. So I don't need you to exist. I'm an adult. I'm not codependent. I don't need you for that. I need you to get even better. We'll both be better than each of us. So, you know, the sum of the parts is greater than the whole and all that stuff. I love it. Well, and to your point about community, we live in a time where more and more people, at least in this country, in the U.S., have checked out from civic organizations and civic participation. It goes back to the whole Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone work. And but people want community. And, and as, as you well know, and I'm sure many of our listeners know, loneliness, pre-pandemic, loneliness was on the rise. It's people want that sense of community. That's why we transitioned World Blue. I mean, we've been around for 23 years. We yeah. transitioned World Blue into a membership model this year. So people join as members and we've reimagined it as a community 
that people are a part of so that they feel that sense of tribe. Because whenever people would come to our summits and and meet others, they're like, oh, I finally found my tribe. And that's why we took that stand because people want to be with communities that share their values. They want to feel that sense of depth and connection and meaning. And if you can feel that in your workplace in that interdependent way, like you're talking about, all the better, all the better. So I love that. Yeah, go ahead. If you just Google or research the phrase epidemic of loneliness, mm-hmm. you're going to get a lot of papers on that that were pre-COVID and now it's a lot worse. People are not connecting and community at work is part of the reintegration because all the problems, I'd say 95% of all the problems we have at work, all you have to do is go back and look at the factories and you find out where this stuff came from. And the idea of separating work and play comes from the factories. 1850 was the first time in the history of man more stuff was made in factories than it was in homes and shops below your home. People going to work is a brand new thing in the history of man. Mm. It's separating work from the rest of your life. And so we introduced this goofy thing called balance as if there is such a thing so that we can balance work. And No, we need to integrate. This needs to be a reintegration of community. And that's what millennials on below are looking for. They're not in survival mode. They're looking to make meaning, not just to make money. And making meaning carries with it. There are people at work that I need to be with. One of the stunning facts I found as I was researching for my book High-performing teams, the number one thing that separates a high-performing team from a regularly performing team is I have a best friend at work. Not a friend, a best friend, and they don't have to be on that team. When you say I have a best friend at work, the likelihood that your team is a high-performing team is exceedingly better than, than the next. So what do we do? We ignore all of the relational stuff and we tell people to run the assembly line faster. It's so true about the best friend at work. My best friend at work, and granted, I'm the founder and CEO of World Blue. It doesn't mean you have best friends. Every single colleague I have is just so cherished. But my best friend is my wonderful colleague, Miranda, who many of our listeners know. And we've worked together for 10 years. We have just absolutely brilliant relationship. And even when she's on vacation, like she is right now, we're still communicating almost every day just about life. And having that is so important to have that connection, know that someone has your back, that you're there for each other. Very, very special and very important. I want to talk, Chuck, now about one of your other practices that I'm very interested in knowing more about because of the name, which you talk about as freedom mapping. Can you tell us more about what freedom mapping is? Freedom mapping uses some traditional process mapping techniques. But here's another blinding flash of the obvious or stunning statistic. I've researched uh, companies that do process mapping. And you can research it yourself. Ask the, look online at, at any company. There's thousands of them out there that map processes. You got the ISO 9000s and the Six Sigmas and, and just hundreds and thousands of smaller companies. As I was researching this a few years ago, I could not find a single line that had any concern for how the process impacted the people who run it. Mm-hmm. Not a single mm-hmm. line. And they didn't even say, we know it doesn't help them, but we don't care. <laughs> it, the people didn't matter. If we just design a great process, we'll just plug people into it. And we don't really care what happens to them. That's the industrial age mindset, isn't it? It's right back to putting a nail in the left boot and passing it to the guy to write you to put a nail in the right boot. It's dehumanizing. We don't care as long as the process works. So freedom mapping starts with what is the highest and best use of each person's 
talents and skills. And how do we use those at work? We develop the process. We absolutely go through the process. But the first question we ask is, who would be the best at, at step number one? Well, Sally is. Well, we all four have to do this. Okay, well, Sally's going to be our champion. She's going to lead us. And any chance we have to give Sally to step number one, we're going to do that. We'll do it as backups. And it frees people to get into their highest and best, which again gets them to making meaning at work. When we hired our first person 12 years ago, we had her draw a freedom map for herself. After we figured out what she was doing, she figured out, she put the whole thing together. And a year and a half later, we hired somebody else because it was too much for her. And the first thing we asked her before we hired was, okay, do a map of what you really think are your, is your best contribution here. Take the things that you're doing and keep those. And let's make another map for somebody else. And then let's hire somebody in that image. And we've just done that over and over and over again. I absolutely love that. You know, right before... COVID lockdown, I was at a dinner party and I was talking with an individual whose job is one of these sort of process, dehumanizing processes. (laughs) And how can we squeeze out every bit of efficiency? And it is so dehumanizing and there is no human factor. And I was telling him what we do with Freedom at Work and he just lit up. He was like, oh. And you get less, you get less productivity. Yeah. We worked with the pickle factory. There's a lot of Peter Piper jokes in this one, but for 25 years, the people on the line were packing eight to 12 cases a day for decades. Mm. Within three months, wow. the people on the line were packing 18 to 24 cases a day after 30 years of not being able to do that because we rehumanized the work. We brought them in on the process. We asked them what they should do. We made them into capitalists and started compensating them for extra work and that kind of stuff, and they blew the walls out. Isn't that amazing what can happen? And when we bring humanity into it, when we give power to the people to have a say in their decisions and have that level of influence and impact. And Tracy, I just want to mention this real quickly because it's so important. There's three taxes at work. And one of them is, you know, what we call the, the staffing tax or the quitting tax. People quitting. Wegmans is in a industry where 36% turnover is the norm in the grocery industry. Their turnover is 3%. And it's because they've humanized the workplace. They put people on planes, baggers and, sh- and clerks on planes to go to new locations to say, hey, is this a good place to put a store in? They want their input because they're going to be infected. And 3% in an industry where 36% is the norm because they've rehumanized the workplace. Imagine the millions of dollars that saves you every year. Just that one thing. Absolutely. We have found with independent research that was done on, on World Blues data that companies that practice freedom at work, which is also with you on that rehumanizing, have on average 700% greater revenue growth over a three-year period compared to S&P 500 companies. So it's just incredible, the bottom line impact, and then the impact it has on people's joy and happiness and their lives when they go home, (laughs) if it's not already yet integrated, like you were talking about, which is, is so true. Let me ask you, Chuck, something else that I found very provocative in the book is results-based incentives that you talk about. We live in an age where people think that culture is perks. Having a good culture means, you know, you're served free lunch every day and you can bring your dog to work. Tell us about what results-based incentives are. That's a great question. And and the whole idea of free lunch and all that kind of stuff, a lot of times that's not, has nothing to do with incentives and it has nothing to do with culture. People say companies like Google have a great culture. 
I worked with them for a, a very short period of time. We, we parted ways very quickly because I've never been in a place that was more like a 1904 factory. They don't have a good culture at all. They have great perks. The great perks enslave people to the bad culture where you don't have any say in your future. I'm going to tell you after 10 years of being on the human track, you're now on the product track or vice versa. I'm just going to tell you. You know, it's just bizarre how uh, tech companies treat their people like they work in a factory. So, you know, we've got to get away from that idea. And uh, again, you look at the industrialized. Where did bonuses come from? Bonuses is one of the dumbest things we've ever done at work. And Chevy Chase does a great job of mocking them in the movie, you know, Christmas Vacation, <laughs> where he pre-buys a pool because of his bonus. Bonuses have no relationship to productivity. Again, it was in 1850 that more people worked in factories. That's when bonuses started to get doled out. For thousands of years before that, people got paid for what they did. If there were two shoemakers in town and one made 10 shoes fast, or we made 10 shoes a week really well, and the other guy made five shoes a week really badly, who made more money? The guy who made 10 shoes. But now you take both of them, you stick them in a factory, you have them put a nail in the left and the right boot, and who gets paid more? They get the same thing. One might get a 2.3% pay raise at the end of the year, and the other one gets a 2.2. There's no incentive to get involved because we took away the capitalist view of that for them. So we did this with a company in D.C. that had 17 truck drivers. They had an 80% failure rate on their deliveries. They incentivized, they stopped giving bonuses, and they started doing incentives directly related to performance. And within three months, their failure rate was down from 80% to 6%. Incredible. Because you got everybody involved in the game. This is the gamification of work. You know, money is not the objective. Money is the scorecard. In yeah. capitalism, capitalism always adds value. And you find out if you add value because you get money. So people at work, if you add value, you get money. We have someone here that joined us at $39,000 a year. She got a pay raise every month for 13 months and ended up at 65000 and made over hundred because she was giving results. You would never get that in a bonus-based system. So what a common sense thing. Let's pay people for being productive, not for how long they've been there, not for any of the other things that we do. Let's pay them for being productive. So someone who's been there for a year could get all excited and make more money than someone who's been there for 10 years because they work harder and deliver more. I love that. I love that. And it's so practical and insightful and produces real results when it is results-based. As we wrap up here, Chuck, I also want you to focus on one of your other amazing practices that you talk about in the book, which is reverse hiring. Hiring is such an issue. And I know we talk a lot about it with our members. What's reverse hiring? Yeah, well, everything the industrial age taught us about how to run work, we need to throw and start over because it came from slavery. That's the first mention of management is in Hammurabi's code 5,000 years ago. Came from slavery into serfdom, into the military, into factories, out into human resources in America today. We got to throw the whole thing out. It just doesn't help us. And this is one of them. Everything we were taught to do by the industrial age is wrong. And when it comes to running a business and hiring couldn't be worse. What do we do? We word search. We have a transactional mm. view of relationship. We don't have a relationship. It's a word search for four years experience, PowerPoint, and bachelors. Yeah. <laughs> word search for those four things when, in fact, someone could have used PowerPoint for four years and have a bachelor's and be incredibly bad at it. Somebody else picks it up and in three months, they're really good at it. It has no relationship to actual effectiveness, but it's a lazy 
way to do business. And we learn from the factories you hire for two things, skills and experience. And experience includes education. So how much education and experience do you have? And how many years skill do you put down on that piece of paper? You sit across the desk from somebody and you're both looking at your resume and you say to the person, huh, it says here you're good at PowerPoint. Are you good at PowerPoint? The other person says yes. And you say, well, good, you're hired. We need somebody who's good at PowerPoint. You don't have a clue if they're good at PowerPoint. But based on on a resume and what we call obituaries, it's a nice statement of what people used to do, people get hired. So we want to start with beliefs and culture. Beliefs you can't teach, You're, and business beliefs. It's not the culture beliefs that way. It's business beliefs. What do you believe about people? Are people stupid and lazy? Or are people smart and motivated? What do you believe about business? Does it exist to make money or to add value? We want you to share your business beliefs with us, and you've got to be on the same page as us with those business beliefs. The second thing we do is we look at their talent, their innate talents, because you can't teach the talents. If you want somebody to be silver-tongued, you can't teach that. You don't have the time to teach it. It would take you years and years if you could. You do that. And then last, the last thing you do is you look at the skills and experience. If someone matches your culture, they have the the innate talents to do what you're doing. So we have an 11-step hiring process that doesn't look at the resume. It doesn't even ask for the resume until step seven. We're down to eight or 10 people left. And we finally ask for a resume. And every single time we've done this and every one of the companies who does this, that we recommend it to says the same thing. They end up with better rock stars than they would if they had done it traditionally. We hire for skills and experience in the industrial age, but in the participation age, you hire for beliefs, culture, and talent. That's exactly right, On I couldn't agree with you more. I could not agree with you more. So if you're listening and you're digging what Chuck has to say, you've got to check out his new book. Again, my guest has been Chuck Blakeman, founder and chief transformation officer at the Crankset Group. You can learn more about them at cranksetgroup.com. Or better yet, just have him go to chuckblakeman.com. There you go, chuckblakeman.com directly. And his new book that's just coming out this fall, again, is called Rehumanizing the Workplace by Giving Everybody Their Brain Back. Chuck, it has been so fun to talk with you. Thank you for your keen, sharp insights. I know they're going to be of great value to our listeners. So thanks again Uh, for being with us. Yeah, Tracy, you're a champion of the right way to go. We're loving what you guys are doing. Keep going. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to today's show on Freedom at Work. If you like what you heard and you're interested in finding out if you're a fit to work with World Blue, here's what I invite you to do next. Head on over to worldblue.com slash call. That's world and then blue without an E, B-L-U. And book an appointment to speak with our team. We'll get on the phone with you for about 45 minutes and explore how to help you develop a freedom-centered mindset, thrive as a freedom-centered leader, or build a freedom-centered workplace culture. Remember, living, leading, and working in freedom rather than fear in order to unleash your full potential does not happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. We have over 20 years of experience working all over the world with top leaders and brands from small businesses to Fortune 500 companies, helping them achieve results with our proven methods and courses. To see if we can help you do the same, head on over to worldblue.com call and book a call with our team now. I'm Tracy Fenton, and I can't wait to connect with you soon.